0: Um, And now to introduce today's speaker, we are joined by Dr. Stephanie Griffith, who's a hospitalist physician at Providence St. Vincent. Dr. Griffith earned her medical degree from University of Washington, and then we were fortunate enough to have her join us for internal medicine residency, and also serve as our chief resident here at Providence St. Vincent. Dr. Griffith is an outstanding clinician educator and a core hospitalist faculty with our internal medicine residency. She is also clinical associate professor at Elson S Floyd College of Medicine at Washington State University where among other roles she serves as the faculty advisor for medical students for size inclusivity. Uh, Additional academics um, that Dr Griffith uh, pursues include career mentorship, ACLS and code blue training and teaching on weight bias, sepsis and clinical reasoning. Dr. Griffith is a highly respected clinician and teacher and we are so delighted to have her join us today.
1: It's so much easier to get up here after hearing that. (laughs) And in a room full of supportive faces. So I'm so excited to be here. Um, In 2021, I spoke with Dr. Nadiri about harms of weight bias, a talk that resonated with many of you, but left you with a lot of questions. Today we'll build on that talk and focus more on the flaws with our current views on weight and health and how a weight neutral, weight inclusive or size inclusive approach can better serve our patients. I have no disclosures. So we'll start by meeting Tanya, a young healthy med student with a long life in front of her coming to you for weight loss advice. Before deciding how to treat Tanya, we'll meet Mary and John, two recent patients I cared for in the hospital Hospital who li- whose lives highlight potential harms of a weight centric approach. We'll come back to Tanya afterwards, taking a look at what a weight neutral approach can look like and the evidence behind it. Before we dive in, I have to call out how weight and health is a uniquely challenging area of medicine. The o- overlap with cultural beliefs around beauty ideals is undeniable. And the line between pursuit of health and pursuit of an ideal body type is blurry at best. And unfortunately, physicians and medicine in general are not immune to this. A note on language here too. I tend to avoid using terms like overweight or obese as these pathologize a person based on size alone and are stigmatizing and harmful, but I will use them when they were what I'm citing in a study. I don't find person first language to be any better as it's still implying that a large person has a pathologic condition. Again, simply by being a certain size. I will use the term fat regularly as this is a neutral descriptor, just like tall or thin. The fact that it's considered an insult or a negative descriptor is simply a reflection of our beliefs about fatness and fat people. However, I'm not suggesting that fat is an appropriate term to begin using towards towards or with patients without first asking them what their preferred language is. I tend to use terms like higher or lower body weight, larger or smaller, etc., when interacting with patients and colleagues. So let's meet Tanya. Oh, and I just have to warn you, visual learners, this is a very narrative talk. So apologies. There's a lot of listening. Um, Tanya is a 30-year-old fourth-year medical student with no significant past medical history who presents to you asking for weight loss advice as your, as her PCP. Her BMI is 34. She grew up being bullied for her weight and has been on diet since she was a young child and still feels ashamed that she can't seem to get it under control. Everyone in her family is obese and she wants to break the cycle. She feels constant scrutiny about what she eats and what she wears and that weight loss is the only thing keeping her from being healthy and reaching her full potential. She's reminded on a daily basis at school of how poor her health is because of her size and wants to do something about it. I think at this point it's helpful also to reflect on what we mean when we're talking about health. Often in medicine, we think of health as lack of disease or at least improvement in a medical condition, but I know we all can agree it's more than that. As doctors, we're always balancing side effects and risks of medicines with potential benefits. I think of people that we start on GDMT, which I know is supposed to improve their heart failure and mortality. But if a patient can't get out of bed because of their beta blocker making them too fatigued or their orthostatic hypotension because of their ACE, ARB, or ARNI, Um, we reconsider whether or not the benefit to their health is actually worth it if it's impacting their quality of life negatively. This may seem pretty far in left field since we're not here to talk about heart failure, but one of my biggest concerns, and the reason that I'm here in front of you today is that I believe our current preoccupation with body size and all the focus on weight management not only fails to meet our standards for risk benefit in many cases, but also often worsens quality of life and causes harm. So with that in mind, let's dive in. In a weight normative approach to a patient like Tanya, health is viewed through a lens filtered by the patient's size. Personal responsibility for healthy lifestyle choices and the maintenance of healthy weights are emphasized and often prescribed for prevention or treatment of a disease. In this model, Tanya's physician may express shared concern about her size and the health risks it poses to her now and in the future. Without even realizing it, they will likely have made assumptions about her health, her habits, and the reason she is her current size. He or she may recommend diet exercise, starting with a target of 5 to 10% weight loss to begin with. In the future, medications and surgery may be even recommended if her weight isn't reduced. Unfortunately, this approach is deeply rooted in biased beliefs about fat people and it perpetuates harmful bias and discrimination. Additionally. Despite this being a widely accepted practice in medicine, the evidence behind our assumptions about size and health is less solid than we are led to believe. So in the weight centric approach, as we all know, the BMI is used to categorize patients under normal, overweight, obese, et cetera. And based on this category, their risk of disease or health is estimated or rather assumed. The history of the BMI and its current use is interesting and complicated. So bear with me while I try and summarize briefly. It was actually derived from a simple math formula in the 1830s by Lambert Adolf Jacques Quetelet, a Belgian statistician, among other things, but not physician, who set out to describe the average or ideal man and map a bell curve of the size of the population. The formula was simple, weight in kilograms divided by the square of the height in meters, and it was termed the Quetelet index. Fast forward to the early 1900s when life insurance companies noted different life expectancies based on the height and weight of policyholders. They spent decades trying to perfect a formula to categorize their customer, customer's risk, thereby adjusting their life insurance rates. Eventually in the 1970s, they adopted the mathematical formula from Quetelet and termed it the BMI. It wasn't until the 1990s that the BMI became more widely used in medicine. But at that time, obesity did not have a universal definition and was still not considered a disease and could not be reimbursed for. Many of you in the room may remember that. Many people don't realize that in 1998, a group called the International Obesity Task Force recommended to the World Health Organization that they lower the BMI cutoffs for overweight and obesity, despite lack of evidence to support this. The task force also pushed for the medicalization of obesity with the goal of it becoming a reimbursable condition. A fact that goes from odd to outright alarming when it's revealed that the task force was funded almost entirely by contributions from the pharmaceutical industry with ties to the weight loss industry as mentioned the bmi is based on a mathematical formula from the 1800s developed on measuring heights and weights of belgian men women were excluded and the population was almost entirely white europeans for that reason among others there are significant racial disparities with the bmi Black patients generally have a higher BMI without associated comorbidities when compared to whites, and Asians generally have lower BMIs at which they may develop metabolic syndrome. This is probably also due in part to the fact that the BMI does not properly assess body fat percentage and muscle mass or distinguish from abdominal fat from gluteofemoral fat, which is an important to note because abdominal fat is associated with insulin resistance, metabolic disease, and cardiovascular complications whereas subcutaneous or gluteofemoral fat is not. I think most people in this room can agree that the BMI is severely limited at best and utterly useless at worst. Despite its widely accepted flaws though, studies continue to focus on the relationship between BMI and health, um, and health outcomes, with many people coming to the conclusion that a higher BMI causes disease and early death. There are multiple problems with this, One, as we just saw, the BMI itself is very limited uh, in utility. It's a limited utility in assessing health. Consider the fact that two people with the same BMI can have vastly different health conditions, and two people with vastly different BMIs can have the same health conditions. Two, the studies are limited by observational designs and can only conclude correlation, not causation. And three, the results that we do have from those studies are actually quite variable. For example, a few weeks ago, Dr. Hassel summarized a study for us using observational data from previous reviews that demonstrated keeping the BMI between 18 and 24.9, in addition to other healthy habits, was associated with greater longevity. But as I'll show now, that's not always the case. So for example, here are some of the results from a 2005 study from JAMA titled, Excess deaths associated with underweight, overweight and obesity and this was using data from that national health and nutrition examination surveys one two and three from the 70s to 2000 the i think you can see it pretty well but the far graph on the left is the youngest CORHO and the far on the right is the oldest cohort with age greater than 70. the y-axis is relative risk uh, from all-cause mortality and the x-axis is BMA, bmi categories the square points represent the combined data from all three studies in general, you see highest mortality in underweight and BMI over 35, but through age underweight mortality actually increases to higher than that and higher, higher weight mortality actually decreases. I'll also call your attention with these very large arrows. I didn't realize how big they would be. <laughs> um, which are pointing, as you can clearly see, um, to the BMA, BMI category of 25 to 30, which is the overweight category. And you can see is actually consistently similar or lower mortality than normal weight, you know, in contradiction to the study that we saw a few weeks ago. So although some studies do suggest that a normal BMI, BMI is advantageous, many others don't including a 2019 systemic review and meta-analysis in JAMA, again, titled All-Cause Mortality with Overweight and Obesity. This reviewed worldwide studies, had a total of 2.8, almost 2.9 million participants, and observed over 270,000 deaths. In that study, grade one obesity and overweight were associated with lower all-cause mortality with a hazard ratio of 0.95. Excess mortality attributed to obesity was largely attributable to a BMI greater than 35, as opposed to class one. Um, And although this 2019 review didn't examine the underweight category, the previously discussed review in 2005 did, and many other observational studies have. And the underweight BMI is consistently associated with increased mortality, often as high or higher than that of greater than 35. This is where I'll pause while we consider the absolute moral panic around mortality associated with high BMIs and the complete lack of the same regarding mortality associated with underweight BMIs. Despite the limitations of the data and results, for decades we have used BMI to assign health status and even decide eligibility for treatments or surgeries or charge higher premiums for insurance or before the ACA deny insurance due to a pre-existing condition. So with that, Let's meet Mary. I met Mary as she transferred out of the ICU to the wards. She's 71 with a BMI of 37 and a past medical history of right knee OA and frequent UTIs, and she was admitted for septic shock. She very nearly died, but, was, but ultimately pulled through. Her recovery has been complicated by poor ambulation due to right knee pain, as well as severe yeast under her panis. Upon entering the room, Mary's visiting with her sister. I introduce myself and reassure her that she's really made it through quite a lot. Mary's a jovial lady who grabs her sister's hand, looks at me and says, well, they told me I couldn't eat the whole time I was down there and I'm down 20 pounds, so at least I finally lost some weight. Although it's clear that Mary has said this half jokingly, they both rejoice and begin lamenting their stubborn fat, which despite a lifetime of diets has never, never disappeared for long. Mary ultimately discharges to sniff, a process which is delayed due to inadequate staffing to meet her needs, with many facilities declining her due to her size. In all her notes, I see BMI complicates all aspects of care with generic advice to work on diet and exercise and lose weight. Mary's case offers us the opportunity to challenge our assumptions in several ways, starting with the sepsis outcomes in obese patients, which is one example of the so-called obesity paradox. I'm curious how many people here have heard of the obesity paradox. People that I talk to a lot (laughs) and one other person. um this term is used when patients um at higher body weights do better than patients with similar conditions that are at lower body weights it's been coined a paradox because of our underlying assumption that increased body weight is always pathologic and harmful but i find this puzzling in science we come up with a hypothesis and test it if our results don't support our hypothesis we generally conclude that it was wrong So why then, when larger patients do better than smaller patients, do we conclude it's a paradox rather than evidence that we need to reformulate a hypothesis? In Mary's case, her body weight may have somehow conferred her an advantage for surviving sepsis as shown in several recent reviews. Very large arrows again. (laughs) um this is a 2023 updated meta-analysis in the journal of intensive care that was conducted as a follow-up on previous studies which had shown an obesity paradox where normal and underweight did worse than high weights this compiled 15 studies with about 105,000 patients in total and in the in the forest plot is shown on the screen the green arrow indicates a group of studies comparing mortality in underweight versus normal weight favoring normal weight on the right and the blue arrow indicates remaining studies comparing mortality in overweight, obese, and morbidly obese versus normal weight, generally favoring higher weight on the left, though there were some exceptions. For the sake of time, I haven't included the previous reviews, but similar findings were reported in critical care medicine in 2016 and 2019. The areas of medicine where obesity paradox have been noted are almost countless, as you can see listed on the slide, which is not all inclusive. For the sake of time, I'll just quote the conclusion from a recent 2023 study on patients undergoing transcatheter aortic valve implantation. To quote, there was a trend toward higher comorbidities such as hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia in overweight patients and individuals with obesity. Compared with normal weight, patients with obesity had a lower rate of 30-day mortality, odds ratio of 0.42, one-year mortality, odds ratio of 0.48, and long-term mortality, odds ratio of 0.69. It's not lost on me that many of the conditions listed here are also found more frequently in higher body weight patients, though I will point out that none occur exclusively in higher weights. I would never conclude that someone should become fat to protect themselves or that I know for a fact that the fat on their body is why they survived. I don't know why larger people survive longer with certain conditions, just like I don't know why our patients have better survival in other conditions. What I do know is that our current approach of continuing to pathologize body size despite conflicting evidence is questionable at best. In addition to the fact that Mary's size may have somehow been protective or beneficial in her sepsis hospitalization, she unfortunately has also received biased care because of her size as many large patients do. Mary struggled with mobility due to severe knee OA, a condition which a thinner patient would have been offered a TKA a long time ago or a joint replacement but for which Mary has been declined so far due to her high BMI, instead encouraging weight loss first. But what does the evidence say regarding body size and complications in total joint replacements? This article in the journal Bone Joint Surgery in 2018 looked at 27,000 total joint arthroplasties, both uh, knee and hip. And I'm just going to read a few of these conclusions. With a BMI exclusion criteria of over 40, About 1,100 patients would have been denied a surgical procedure free of major complications, and 83 patients would have avoided major surgical complication. The study had an interesting design where they used um, positive predictive value for complications based on BMI of 40, 30, or flipping a coin, and they found that a BMI cutoff of 30 for eligibility was marginally better than flipping a coin, and absolutely should not be used for criteria. Additional concerns regarding body size and joint replacements have been that heavier patients won't have as good a pain relief as thinner patients, suggesting perhaps they should lose weight first, but a study in 2017 of nearly 5000 people undergoing total joint replacement found that six months later um, severely or morbidly obese patients reported excellent pain relief and substantial functional gain that was similar to smaller patients. BMI cutoffs are also widely used across medicine for fertility treatment, breast reduction, organ transplantation, and gender-affirming surgeries, to name a few. In some states, ob practices have actually declined to take patients at all above certain weight or BMI cutoffs. Cutoffs can range anywhere from normal BMI to 30, 35, and so on, but the evidence supporting these is slim. And furthermore, where else in medicine do we categorically deny someone an intervention based on risk? Generally, if a patient has increased risk of death or complication due to say underlying cardiac or pulmonary conditions, the surgeon will have a risk benefit conversation with the patient and a decision is made in partnership. I've witnessed these situations many times as a hospitalist and they're filled with nuance and consideration for the individual, something that's often lacking when BMI cutoffs are applied. So why is the conversation about risk associated with BMI or body size so different? I think the answer comes back to our beliefs around body size and it's complicated to say the least. Many times the medical condition requiring treatment such as infertility, breast reduction, et cetera is directly attributed to the patient's size. Therefore it's assumed that if, if the patient had been smaller they wouldn't need the surgery because they may not have the condition or the condition may not be as severe. Similarly, body size is often considered a choice or at the very least a readily modifiable risk factor. There's a sense that the patient has an obligation to change that before being offered surgery because A, maybe they won't need the surgery after all, which is rarely the case, and B, because it may lower their risk of complication, which also is not always the case. And the discussion around BMI gatekeeping and the requirement of weight loss before being offered a medically necessary surgery or treatment would not be complete without addressing perhaps the most confusing recommendation, which is get bariatric surgery first so that your medically necessary surgery will have lower risk of complications. How someone is deemed safe enough for bariatric surgery, but not for breast reduction or knee replacement is lost on me. So how would I approach a patient like Mary with my weight inclusive lens? It starts with compassion and initial recognition of the harms and stigma she's experienced. I ask myself, I wonder if she would have been been in better physical condition if she had had the knee replacement years ago, I can't say for sure, but maybe she would have been less likely to require a sniff. I also ask myself why, if we know that so many of our patients are large like Mary, do we not plan to staff accordingly and have ample appropriate equipment? I also acknowledge that Mary has issues that are directly related to her size, a fact that should not be stigmatized. For example, the yeast under her panis, it's a matter of fact that when skin folds together and rests on itself, it's more prone to irritation, moisture development, buildup of bacteria and yeast. In addition, she struggles with ADLs such as toileting and showering. Again, a matter of fact that not being able to reach your bottom to wipe could increase your risk of UTIs. There's no reason to shy away from these conversations, but we know that patients feel shame and are less likely to bring it up due to fear of being judged or yet again, being told that they just need to lose weight. Instead of instead of having a conversation about these issues in a non-judgmental way, for instead we should have a conversation about these issues in a non-judgmental way. For example, how we would if a tall person needed a bed extender or a very small person needed a pediatric gown. And we need to make ourselves aware of the potential ways to improve Mary's ability to care for herself. So for example, I think that she deserves a home health cons- consult with a nurse dressing her wounds under her panties. And we should talk to OT about assisted devices to extend her wiping ability so that she can remain cleaner and devices to help her shower better as well. So it's really not about avoiding the fact that Mary's size may have any role in her health, but destigmatizing that and addressing those issues and then sort of reassessing our assumptions around her health outcomes and her size as well. Next, I'd like to talk about John. John's 59 with heart failure and I took over his care in the hospital after he'd been been there about a week and diaries 20 pounds. When I met him for the first time, he immediately showed me a picture of himself 60 pounds ago when he was on track doing keto and getting healthy. I sat and listened to John's story, which is very familiar with every doctor's visit of his life saying, lose weight, lose weight, lose weight. John recounts years of successes and failures and becomes emotional about the times that he's fallen off the wagon regained all the weight, and stopped seeing doctors for years at a time due to the deep, deep shame he's felt. He describes this hospitalization as a wake-up call, one that will spark the real change he's been looking for, though he's exasperated because even when he was at his best, he was still obese and constantly being told to lose weight. Over the next few days, I slowly try to introduce John to the idea of health at every size and intuitive eating. Several times he becomes emotional with the idea that he could be healthier even if his body didn't shrink that there, there's more to his health than the number on the scale. Not all patients are receptive to this, but John was and I could see him really considering it. It was like a sense of relief that he'd find out, finally get out of a vicious cycle and try life a new way. On my final rounding day, I open up my list and am alarmed not to find John's name on it. My heart sunk as I realized that John had passed away overnight. John had spent his entire life in a cycle of self hatred and elation, all depending on his size. He skipped events, isolated from friends, deemed himself worthy of living or not based on his weight. I saw that changing, but for John, it was too late. John's life story really highlights the failure of a weight-centric approach when patients are led to believe that weight loss is not only mandatory for health improvement, but the most important thing for health improvement. Almost 20 years ago now, a 2000 study reviewed data for allocation of Medicare funding for obesity. This review looked at the studies of long-term outcomes of calorie restricting diets to assess whether dieting was an effective treatment for obesity. I'll read the quote from the study in their conclusion. They found that the potential benefits of dieting on long-term weight outcomes are minimal. The potential benefits of dieting on long-term health outcomes are not clearly or consistently demonstrated, and the potential harms of weight cycling, although not definitively demonstrated, are clearly a source of concern. So the benefits of dieting are simply too small, and the potential harms of dieting are too large for it to be considered a recommended as safe and effective treatment for obesity. Some specific findings in this review, among others, include that most dieters, about 60 to 80% will maintain their weight loss at a year. Most have complete relapse at three to five years. One third to two thirds regain more than they lost, with 95% regaining all of their weight. Additionally, several studies have looked at both intentional and unintentional weight loss and have demonstrated increased mortality. And it's important to remember when examining literature around intentional weight loss, it should be noted that methodological problems and publication bias is likely leading us to see only the best results. So more than just being ineffective in producing long-term weight loss, John's course demonstrates the most likely outcome of chronic dieters, which is weight cycling. Studies have shown that after significant weight loss, the body has several compensatory changes, including lowering the basal metabolic rate, thought maybe to be trying to maintain a set point weight or set range weight for a patient. And while the exact reasoning for weight regain is not completely understood, it's a common finding across studies. And it's been noted that patients engaging in extreme weight loss attempts and weight cycling Um, in order to maintain a lower weight, often have to exercise greater than two hours a day and have a very low calorie diet just to keep from regaining weight. It's also been noted that over the past decades when the intensity and frequency of of weight loss attempts have increased, so has the prevalence of obesity. So dieting doesn't work, hasn't shown to have consistent health benefits and could lead to weight gain over time. I believe that that in itself should be a reason to stop prescribing it as an intervention but if not consider the fact that aside from being futile weight cycling itself could actually be harmful so i'll briefly summarize these two studies which again are an observational cohort studies the framingham heart study in 1991 um, looked at uh, weight cycling and examined mortality and morbidity in more than 5,000 individuals over 32 years and they found that the risks indicated that weight cycling was strongly linked to overall and cardiovascular overall mortality and cardiovascular disease, with relative risks ranging from 1.3 to 1.9. The Erfurt cohort study in, conducted in Germany was 505 middle-aged men. They were grouped into weight categories of stable, non-obese, stable, obese, weight loss, weight gain, and weight fluctuation. Among these groupings, only the weight fluctuations category was associated with mortality over the 15-year follow-up period, And interestingly, the weight gain group and the stable obese category were not linked to higher risk of death relative to the stable non-obese category. So despite the potential harms, none of the meta-analyses examining the BMI mortality relationship has accounted for potential contributions of weight cycling. This represents a massive confounder and yet again highlights the fact that any findings between BMI and mortality relationship should be interpreted with caution, not as concrete proof that being larger is directly harmful to your health. In addition to weight cycling, John also described some serious weight stigma, a topic we explored in depth in 2019, but which we cannot fail to mention again today. As discussed in 2019, The experience of weight stigma is associated with two and a half fold risk, increase of anxiety and depression, worsened physical and mental health increase, including increased hypertension, lipids, cortisol levels, worse dietary and exercise habits, weight gain, regardless of starting BMI, and has even been associated with increased all cause mortality of up to 60% in observational studies. It's also well described that larger patients receive worse care. Doctors spend less time and have worse opinions of their fat patients, including seeing them as sloppy, lazy, and non-compliant. And as Dr. Nadiri showed us in 2021, um, this starts as early as medical school. She showed us a study w- in which medical students saw standardized patients that were obese and non-obese, um, and it was shown that there was less visual contact with the obese patients. Obese patients were rated as less likely to adhere to recommendations and were held significantly more responsible for their knee pain or dysmia. And for dyspnea, med students were more likely to recommend lifestyle changes and less likely to rec- recommend symptom management, such as an inhaler for obese patients. So what is my weight neutral take on approaching a patient like John? Clearly, I don't think we should have been, been telling John to lose weight over and over again. But I was, as I was talking through John's case with my wonderful friend and colleague, Dr. Haino, he raised a question with great concern. One that I thought many of you have had throughout this talk or something similar. Are you really suggesting we not recommend healthy diet and lifestyle changes to patients like John? As I just said, let's stop telling him to lose weight and lose weight and lose weight. But when did I ever say that we shouldn't recommend healthy diet and lifestyle changes? This question perfectly highlights the cognitive dissonance experienced when attempting to separate weight from health and behaviors. They're so inextricably linked now that it can be impossible to imagine what we would advise our heavy patients to do without recommending or at least envisioning weight loss. A weight neutral approach to John's case and life might sound like this. John has HFPEF, a condition which we know occurs more frequently in heavier people. I don't know if John would have had HFPEF if he were smaller, but I also know that HFPEF occurs in smaller bodies as well, so I won't go so as far to say that his body size caused his HFPEF. It's also helpful to consider how we would approach a very thin patient with osteoporosis. We know osteoporosis occurs more in folks with a BMI less than 19, yet we know better than to tell them to gain weight because A, it probably won't help, and B, they probably can't. Yet we don't stigmatize osteoporosis. Thin patients with associated health conditions are not subjected to the same moral scrutiny that fat patients are. Additionally, I believe John's ability to receive and participate in healthcare was made worse due to the preoccupation with his weight. He demonstrated many habits we know are associated with stigma and weight cycling. He adopted fad diets, he didn't exercise consistently, he stopped going to the doctor and ran out of meds, all because he failed to lose weight. His case is also one where many assumptions were made, like the assumption that weight loss, even if it were possible and sustainable, would improve his heft-pef. When in fact, hef is yet another condition where the obesity paradox is present, with larger patients having better outcomes than smaller patients. And in fact, weight loss has been associated with increased mortality in several studies around, among hef patients and is actually not an evidence-based recommendation. So let's come back to Tanya. Mary and John have a lifetime of experience in a weight-centric medical system. They both remained in large bodies as most chronic dieters do, and evidence suggests that they may even be larger with worse health outcomes because of their years of weight cycling and stigma experienced. I have countless stories from patients with similar experiences and because of that I approach Tanya's concern for her health differently than I was originally trained to do. First of all, based on the limitations of the BMI, I don't immediately assume that Tanya is or will be will become less healthy than if she were at a lower BMI. When meeting her for the first time, I remind myself that I literally know nothing about her health. I cannot assume she eats poorly and is sedentary any more than I can assume the opposite of a thinner patient. And even if I did think that her size may have a negative impact on her health, I know that diet and lifestyle interventions for the explicit purposes of weight loss do not work long term and that the likelihood of an obese woman obtaining a normal BMI is exceedingly low. Therefore, I also challenge the commonly recommended advice that 5 to 10% would be at least a good starting point because a patient like Tanya would have to lose 5 to 10% of her weight four times over before she'd be getting even close to a body size where people would stop suggesting weight loss. I'm more concerned about how her very serious internalized stigma and overt mistreatment have affected her and may put her at risk for worse outcomes. In fact, in one study, medical students who reported high levels of weight stigma were more likely to have unhealthy alcohol use patterns. I also recognize that she holds more than one marginalized identity by being both in a large body and being a black woman, and this often compounds the bias a person experiences. Tanya also mentioned a history of dieting starting at a young age, which raises my concern of disordered eating or harms of weight cycling, which have been associated with unhealthy behaviors such as prolonged fasting, Purging, laxative, and stimulant abuse. And although Tanya is in a larger body, she deserves screening for an eating disorder, which are underdiagnosed in non whites as well as heavier patients, as many people are unaware that you can even have anorexia nervosa if you're not underweight. Unfortunately, her future in medicine is likely to be impacted by her weight as well, or by weight bias as well. A recent study designed a fake uh, It's like called a deception study, designed a fake match for radiology programs across several different programs um, with multiple faculty members reviewing applicants. And it showed strong bias against facially unattractive people and obese applicants. Additionally, a a recent study of ED physicians demonstrated that physician colleagues at higher body weights were thought of more negatively than with their peers, with intrinsic anti fat attitudes being as high as like 83% considering all of that, it seems preposterous to me that I could boil Tanya's health down to her size alone. So what would life and healthcare look like for Tanya if we skipped the weight focus and approached from a size inclusive lens? One framework for this um, is called Hayes or health at every size, which I'll use to frame our talk today because it's been studied in randomized controlled trials but is certainly not the only way to do this. As you can see, Hayes has five core principles. And importantly, there's misconceptions that often keep people from from wanting to adopt Haze like Haze means everyone is healthy regardless of weight or Haze promotes obesity and is anti weight loss when in fact Haze providers simply acknowledge that health issues arise in people of all sizes and that health can be pursued across the size spectrum and that we're not focusing on controlling or shifting body weight anymore, but rather adopting healthy behaviors. I think the biggest hang up though in adopting a size inclusive practice is worrying about doing harm or that you're somehow giving up on your patients. After we've critically examined our weight centric approach as we have today, I would say that any other approach simply has to demonstrate non inferiority or harm reduction to be considered reasonable. But that's my personal opinion. When considering a weight neutral approach, we can ask ourselves how Hayes, uh stacks up in the literature as well as the fitness over fatness debate. So the research around haze is limited to, due to small sample size, but randomized control t- trials do exist. Um, in one specific randomized control trial with 78 participants, people were assigned to haze or weight loss group with six months of weekly intervention followed by six months support and then one and two year follow up. And they found in the haze group that there was significant improvement in cholesterol, blood pressure, though they lost no weight, but they notably sustained their health improvements from one year to two year. The diet group lost weight and showed similar improvements at a year, but had regained weight and did not sustain the other improvements at, at two years. There are several other randomized controlled trials looking at haze, which show similar improvements in physical and mental health, as noted on the slide. And importantly, there have been no adverse changes in any variables on, in the haze groups. And what about fitness in general? Those of you present in my last talk saw this study already, so I'm just going to go through it briefly, but this was a very large 2021 review looking at um, studies of intentional weight loss, fitness, and fit versus unfit phenotypes. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go through the study design, but I'll read some of the results that they came to. And the intentional weight loss studies, which included observational randomized control trials, mortality reduction was inconsistent, generally 0.7 to 0.8 at best. However, it was noted that several studies indicated increased mortality with a relative risk greater than one. In the fitness study, there was an overall more consistent relative risk reduction and more robust, ranging from 0.4 to 0.7. And they looked at studies comparing fit versus unfit phenotypes across the BMI spectrum, and they found that regardless of BMI, unfit phenotype was associated with increased hazard ratio for all cause mortality. The unfit normal BMI had a higher hazard ratio than a fit obese BMI. I think this graphic really sums up how if people adopt lifestyle changes for the purpose of weight loss and get stuck in that cycle, they may not achieve health benefits, but if they adopt lifestyle changes for the purpose of improved health and fitness, they can actually achieve health benefits with or without the side effect of weight loss or weight gain. In addition to fitness, there are other individualized behaviors to improve health, but the underlying mantra is the same. Weight is not a behavior. A 2012 study utilizing the national, that NHANES study again, um, looked at the lifestyle and mortality in a sample of 11,000 or lifestyle habits and mortality in a sample of 11,000 men and women. The healthy habits included eating five or more fruits and vegetables daily, exercising regularly, consuming alcohol in moderation and not smoking and it was found with each additional habit, the hazard ratio for all-cause mortality was reduced. For example, it was 3.2 for patients with zero habits compared to all four, all the way down to a hazard ratio of 1.3 for patients with three habits compared to those with four. And when stratified into normal weight, overweight, and obese groups, all groups benefited from the adoption of healthy habits with the greatest benefit seen in obese group. I'll remind us here that our current weight normative approach, we often set patients up for fad diets, weight stigma increase, and weight cycling, all of which I've just shown you can lead to decrease in exercise, worse dietary habits, and even increased alcohol consumption. And although I'm not gonna spend time on this today, I think it's really important to acknowledge that it's widely accepted in the public health sphere that up to um, only 30 to 40% of our um, individual health behaviors only contribute to 30 or 40% of health outcomes, whereas up to 70% um, of our in, of our health outcomes are actually attributable to social, environmental, and genetic factors that are outside of our control. And for that reason, becoming a size-inclusive provider can't be simply reduced to starting to advise patients on healthy habits and not weight loss. As I highlighted with Tanya, it actually starts with dismantling our assumptions so that we can approach e- each patient with compassion and respect, and acknowledging the things outside of their control that may be impacting their health as well. As Hays aligned physicians, we have to learn to use our voice and position to call for change, ultimately fighting for more equitable treatment of larger patients so that while they work on their individual health behaviors, the systemic barriers are being addressed as well. So depending on the the setting in which you practice, ensuring size, inclusivity and respectful care can mean different things. In clinic, here are a few ideas, which are from a blog post, which I've linked with the QR code, which is also very large, um, by fat activist and athlete Reagan Chastain. Um, this, I'm gonna read you kind of some of the things that I took away that I felt like were really important and actionable, but the blog post has much more information. So start by examining the literature in your waiting rooms and the marketing on the walls. Our fat bodies represented doing the same things that thin bodies are doing. Our magazines are free of weight loss advice. Is there messaging that you are a weight inclusive clinic? Think of our LGBTQI signs that say that we take care of everyone. Do you have messaging that's the same about people of all body sizes? Does the staff represent a wide variety of sizes and ideally races and gender identities? And are they trained to interact with people in a weight neutral way? Like not participating in diet culture talk or not commenting on a patient's weight at the scale? Assess the size of your hallways and the availability of different sized chairs in the waiting room with and without arms. Consider an opt in versus an opt out weigh in policy, only requesting a weight when it's medically necessary and moving the scale to a private area. Have adjustable exam tables. Know the maximum weight of the tables and if they're less than 500 pounds, advocate for that to be increased and ideally in all rooms. And ideally exam tables should be adjusted as well, adjustable as well. Ensure that you have gowns that are large enough so that no one should need to, to, and that each room has those large gowns. If you have equipment for larger bodied people, but it's stored in a separate area and that person's sitting there while the MA is running around going to get their equipment, you may not realize that that's a very stigmatizing experience. Other things are ensuring that you have large enough blood pressure, blood pressure cuffs, that the clinic has appropriate vaccine needles. So for example, in COVID, they were able to demonstrate that above a certain size, you actually need a longer needle for the vaccine to be efficacious. It sounds overwhelming and it is. Um, and if you weren't, aren't sure where to start, I would start with this QR code where she actually has an initial and ongoing audit process to see where your clinic's at and how you're doing in the hospital i have no control over many of these things but i find my own way of being an advocate day-to-day while also working on the system level for change over time first and foremost it starts with my language and my documentation i'm modeling weight neutrality with my patients coworkers, and learners every day i if instead of saying that this morbidly obese woman is too big for someone to move on their own I may say this larger patient may require additional staff to be moved safely. I no longer have BMI categories or mention of size in my one liner or my assessment and plan unless they're explicitly relevant. So for example, if a patient with dementia is admitted, let's say for agitation, but isn't requiring any physical assistance and can ambulate safely, why in the world do I need to have morbid obesity or any mention of their BMI or size anywhere? And if a patient's size will impact their care, that's okay too. For example, weight-based dosing. We absolutely should be aware of times that a larger person needs different doses of medications such as antibiotics or blood thinners, and we should discuss it in the same matter-of-fact way that we would renal dosing. When teaching med students about sepsis management, for example, I often talk about the 30 cc per kilogram IV fluid bolus. Rather than saying something like, morbidly obese people might not need that much fluid because it would be such a large amount. I may say something like people at the very low end of body weights or the very high end of body weights may need more or less fluid than their weight based dose. And I can tell you that people notice med students stop me and say they've never heard someone talk about larger patients this way. I'm also transparent with my patients especially when they're admitted for a condition that's often associated with their larger body size. I might say something as simple as, I know that doctors often make assumptions about people based on their size, and that's not fair. I want you to know that I don't practice medicine that way. I may go into more detail with that patient depending on the condition and their receptiveness to the information. On a broader scale, size inclusivity should also extend to research development and training. If we know that such a large percentage of our population is on the higher end of body weight, shouldn't we be making those folks a priority when training our healthcare workers, researching drugs, not just weight loss drugs and creating equipment. For example, a colleague of mine told me that many phase one clinical trials exclude people who are not normal weight because they don't know how to dose the medicine or interpret the results. Surely this makes dosing chemotherapy and thus interpreting cancer result mortality in our largest patients somewhat challenging, right? I think the bottom line is that until we have ensured that larger patients are free of harms of stigma and bias, have access to the same quality healthcare, and are made a priority in research and training. Our ability to understand the relationship between weight and health will always be limited by confounders. Getting back to the final two principles of Haze, which I think are somewhat out of scope for this talk because they're highly individualized and um, for each patient, but I'll share my expert opinions of sort of where to start and how to think about this. So when it comes to diet and movement, I'm gonna start by sounding like a broken record. Don't make assumptions about what a patient eats or how they move based on their body size and decouple behaviors from weight um, or weight change. The number of times, and I think you all have probably heard this, that I've heard a patient say, well, I heard you can't lose weight through exercise, so I'm just cutting calories is like countless, right? But I think additional things to consider are that if you don't have lived experience in a large body, and I mean objectively large, not larger than you wish you were, Then you may not be aware of the barriers to exercising and eating intuitively that inherently come with being in a large body for example the weight limit for a peloton is 297 pounds also many larger folks have never been afforded the luxury of exercising just to feel good in their body often focusing on you know cardio exercise just to burn calories but rarely doing things like restorative yoga or hiking because they've been told that that won't help them lose weight Another harder step and one that requires reflection on your own beliefs around food is changing your language when you're talking about diet instead of saying things like good, bad, unhealthy, healthy. I use terms like more or less nutrient dense, higher in sugar, or saturated fat that are neutral and avoid moralizing food. And if you're not sure what I mean by that, think about when someone brings in treats for Christmas. And the whole room starts up with oh, that's dangerous. Oh, I'm going to gain 10 pounds. That's diabetes on a plate or I can't eat that junk. You can consider educating yourself on these topics and even reflecting on your own relationship with food. But regardless of what you do for yourself, I think that you should start compiling weight neutral resources so that your patients can work on their relationship with food and their body. If you want to take a picture of this, it's some resources that I recommend um, as we're wrapping up here. Um, inclusive Diabetes Care and um, Center for Body Trust, both have workshops for, for, for professionals and patients. Um, Body Expressions is a eating disorder clinic, but doesn't only see people with eating disorders and they offer um, group and individual counseling and weight neutral dietitians. They also take OHP and have Spanish speaking um, counselors intuitive eating pros are the original authors of the intuitive eating book and they have many courses and links to their books up on the top right med students for size inclusivity is an amazing national organization that has wonderful resources including a lot of the articles that i talked about today and then the bottom right qr code that's next to this book which is an amazing account of the lived experience of a fat person Um, but the link will actually take you to a list of a lot of similar books So let's wrap it up and get back to our patients. Through Mary's experience, we shed light on the limitations of using BMI to assess health or predict outcomes, as well as the harms of using BMI to restrict access to medical care. Through John's experience, we explored the harmful course of weight cycling and stigma associated with repeatedly hearing that weight loss is required for health improvement. And based on their experience, we approached Tanya with a weight-inclusive lens. Through this approach, her future is one where she can pursue health regardless of her size. Her physicians will advocate on her behalf if she meets barriers barriers of care due to her BMI, and through time, she may be able to repair her relationship with food and her body. Today's talk was not about having all the answers. If I've helped cast even a shadow of a doubt on the merits of our current weight-centric approach, or shown the smallest light on the benefits of a weight-neutral approach, then I hope you're walking away with a lot of questions too. You will have moments of doubt and discomfort and ask yourself, am I doing the wrong thing? What if this patient's weight is bad for them? But because of what you've learned today, you can critically evaluate the assumption about size and health. You can remind yourself that weight is not a behavior. And most importantly, the true touchstone that I come back to as a weight neutral physician is that I'm fighting to improve care by reducing stigma and bias to a marginalized population, which in and of itself is the right thing to do. By adopting a size inclusive approach, it's my opinion that you'll be on the right side of history. I think dec- years or sadly decades from now, we'll wonder how we ever treated people so differently or poorly based on their size. I understand that we're far from perfect in medicine, but we have to learn from our mistakes. It's our obligation to challenge the status quo when things aren't making sense. And remember that we must first do no harm. I'm asking you to consider that our weight centric approach is something that needs to change. Our patients deserve better and I sincerely hope you'll join me in being part of the solution. Thanks guys.
0: Dr. Griffith, many thanks for your insightful talk. I'll take some questions from the audience. Thanks so much for this really great talk. Um, I have a question about some health conditions have, like based on guidelines, the first line treatment, I'm thinking of like um, NAFLD and things like that, mm-hmm. is to lose a certain percentage of weight. And so how do we approach that in a way that's non-stigmatizing to our patients and then um, still follow guidelines?
1: Yeah. Well, I would say first and foremost, um, we could take a step back and ask what evidence those guidelines are based on. Um as the majority of our research is going into it with the um, assumption that we know that the body size is the harm and therefore shrinking it will improve it we sort of look at it differently than we may look at for many other conditions Um, additionally i think we also know that many of the things that patients would do to lose weight in a healthy way will also improve things like NASH or NAFLD such as exercise reduce alcohol intake improve dietary changes so um I would probably start from the lens of what your health habits look like now and can any of those be changed and maybe will it help the condition? Um, Although I acknowledge that that may not actually be following the guideline recommendations.
0: Thank you, I'll take one question um, from here on our online audience. Um, What do you think of semaglutide and its effect on weight? with some newer studies showing improved cardiovascular outcomes in select patients?
1: Um, So I very specific, I did not have time to dive into the GLP one agonist today. Um, So I'm gonna try and answer that question, but I'm also kind of just gonna start with my concerns about using those medications for weight loss in general. Um, So first and foremost, I guess to answer that question is that we do see benefits. We see weight loss and we see benefits in health but both of those are rapidly lost if the medication is discontinued. So my initial concern is that we may see see short-term or temporary improvements, um, but I have other concerns about how sustainable that is. So um, first and foremost, if they have to stop the medication for some reason, whether that be side effects, financial reasons, pregnancy, because these are not approved in pregnancy and you're actually supposed to stop them several months before becoming pregnant, um, what is that patient gonna do when they regain that weight and lose the benefits that they had uh, achieved. I'll also just note that um, people putting patients on these medications for weight loss specifically with the thought that, oh, it's also gonna improve these other conditions. um, I'm clearly not convinced that someone needs to lose weight to be healthier. um, And hopefully after this talk, you aren't either. So rather than going to this medication, which you can say, oh, it has health benefits and you're gonna get to lose this weight, I would again argue you start from a standpoint of what are all the other things that we could do that would also benefit your health Um, this is from that med students for size inclusivity and they actually have a great um this whole document which is linked in the qr code is about informed consent for glp ones and they have a great in the top right list of five questions that patients could ask themselves or you could ask patients before choosing to um to start them so i think that kind of answered the question and also said many other things,
0: (laughs) right? Clearly a complex topic. Thank you for your expertise. Well,
1: Thanks so much for your talk, Stephanie. I really appreciate this Um, at the Ethics Center. We've done a little bit of work over the years on thinking about structural competency and uh, sort of the structural forces that affect patient health and outcomes. And I think this points a lot, especially in your conversations on bias um, and the internalized kind of messaging that can come in training and uh, even just throughout medical discourse can have on the care we're providing. You had mentioned um, a reflection on if you're encountering barriers for your patients, you know, to maybe be a part of advocating for addressing those barriers. I was wondering if you were pointing to BMI cutoffs for, uh, you know, procedural encounters and the like. Can you give me an example of what that looks like from your practice or in primary care about what that advocacy process can look like? You know, um. I'll give you an example of what it's looked like for me before as a hospitalist, Um, I have to acknowledge that I don't work in a primary care setting anymore and I I sometimes wish I did for this reason because I would love to advocate for more people. Um, A most recent example I have is um, kind of an older lady in a very large body um, came in with acute kidney injury and it was looking like she was heading towards dialysis. Um, And over the days of getting to know her, I learned that before she got sick with this kidney injury, she was super active, walked all the time, just a very robust life. And the kidney doctor um, kind of met her once and said, "Mm, she's a terrible candidate for dialysis. You know, she's she's sedentary, she's morbidly obese, she this and that and all these other things. And I picked up the phone and called him and said, I have really serious concerns about the fact that you're saying this person is not a candidate for dialysis. Here's what their picture of health looks like. Here's how they move their body. Here's that the fact that they want it and can get to dialysis, et cetera, et cetera. If dialysis is indicated for this condition, uh, when you remove that layer of what you're concerned about with body size, then I think we should consider it. And they ultimately did offer dialysis and she started it and did just fine.
0: Thank you for your advocacy. I'll call it just a comment here online to the benefit of our live audience here. Um, uh, Speaking to the work of Dr. Felidus and information on adverse childhood experiences, um, which have been uh, significantly associated with challenges and um, difficulty in losing weight and keeping weight off. And it's interesting to think about how many of these folks likely have bases in childhood trauma and generational trauma which we struggle to address complex relationship between aces and yeah weight. like
1: adults at higher body weights that uh, are trying to lose weight and can't often have higher trauma scores as children yeah um it's it's a very real concern i think that goes into that 70 percent of social determinants which is a huge category and considers considers so many things um but i think that's definitely one of them
0: Great. Well, it looks like we are right at the top of the hour. Thank you, Dr. Griffith for your outstanding teaching.
1: I thought they were going to